Chapter 14 of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 14 The Too Ready Writer. One who talks too much, hindering the rest of the company from taking their turn, and apparently seeing no reason why they should not rather desire to know his opinion or experience in relation to all subjects or at least to renounce the discussion of any topic where he can make no figure, has never been praised for this industrious monopoly of work which others would willingly have shared in. However various and brilliant his talk may be, we suspect him of impoverishing us by excluding contributions of other minds, which attract our curiosity the more, because he has shut them up in silence. Besides, we get tired of a manner in conversation, as in painting when one theme after another is treated with the same lines and touches. I begin with a liking for an estimable master, but by the time he has stretched his interpretation of the world unbrokenly along a palatial gallery, I have had what the cautious Scotch mind would call enough of him. There is monotony and narrowness already to spare in my own identity, what comes to me from without should be larger and more impartial than the judgment of any single interpreter. On this ground, even a modest person, without power or will to shine in the conversation, may easily find the predominating talker a nuisance, while those who are full of matter on special topics are continually detecting miserably thin places in the web of that information which he will not desist from imparting. Nobody that I know of ever proposed a testimonial to a man for thus volunteering the whole expense of the conversation. Why, then, is there a different standard of judgment with regard to a writer who plays much the same part in literature as the excessive talker plays in what is traditionally called conversation? The busy Adrastus, whose professional engagements might seem more than enough for the nervous energy of one man, and who yet finds time to print essays on the chief current subjects from the trilingual inscriptions or the idea of the infinite among the prehistoric laps to the colorado beetle and the grape disease in the south of france is generally praised if not admired for the breadth of his mental range and his gigantic powers of work poor theron who has some original ideas on a subject to which he has given years of research and meditation has been waiting anxiously from month to month to see whether his condensed exposition will find a place in the next advertised program, but sees it, on the contrary, regularly excluded, and twice the space he asked for filled with the copious brew of Adrastus, whose name carries custom like a celebrated trademark. Why should the eager haste to tell what he thinks on the shortest notice as if his opinion were a needed preliminary to discussion, get a man the reputation of being a conceited bore in conversation when nobody blames the same tendency if it shows itself in print. The excessive talker can only be in one gathering at a time, and there is the comfort of thinking that everywhere else other fellow citizens who have something to say may get a chance of delivering themselves but the exorbitant writer can occupy space and spread over it the more or less agreeable flavor of his mind in four mediums at once, and on subjects taken from the four winds. Such restless and versatile occupants of literary space and time should have lived earlier when the world wanted summaries of all extant knowledge, 
and this knowledge being small, there was the more room for commentary and conjecture. They might have played the part of an Isidore of Seville or a Vincent of Beauvais brilliantly, and the willingness to write everything themselves would have been strictly in place. In the present day, the busy retailer of other people's knowledge which he has spoiled in the handling, the restless guesser and commentator, the importunate hawker of undesirable superfluities, the everlasting world-compeller who rises early in the morning to praise what the world has already glorified, or makes himself haggard at night in writing out his descent from what nobody ever believed, is not simply gratis anhelens multa angendo nihil agens. He is an obstruction. Like an incompetent architect with too much interest at his back, he obtrudes his ill-considered work where place ought to have been left to better men. Is it out of the question that we should entertain some scruple about mixing our own flavor, as of the too cheap and insistent nutmeg, with that of every great writer and every great subject, especially when our flavor is all we have to give, the matter or knowledge having been already given by someone else? What if we were only like the Spanish wineskins, which impress the innocent stranger with the notion that the Spanish grape has naturally a taste of leather? One could wish that even the greatest minds should leave some themes unhandled, or at least leave us no more than a paragraph or two on them to show how well they did in not being more lengthy. Such entertainment of scruple can hardly be expected from the young, but happily their readiness to mirror the universe anew for the rest of mankind is not encouraged by easy publicity. In the vivacious Pepin I have often seen the image of my own early youth, when it seemed to me astonishing that the philosophers had left so many difficulties unsolved, and that so many great themes had raised no great poet to treat them. I had an elated sense that I should find my brain full of theoretic clues when I looked for them, and that whenever a poet had not done what I expected, it was for want of my insight. Not knowing what had been said about the play of Romeo and Juliet, I felt myself capable of writing something original on its blemishes and beauties. In relation to all subjects, I had a joyous consciousness of that ability which is prior to knowledge, and of only needing to apply myself in order to master any task, to conciliate philosophers whose systems were at present but dimly known to me, to estimate foreign poets whom I had not yet read, to show up mistakes in an historic monograph that roused my interest in an epoch which I had been hitherto ignorant of when I should once have had time to verify my views of probability by looking at an encyclopedia. So, Pepin, save only that he is industrious while I was idle. Like the astronomer in Rasselas, I swayed the universe in my consciousness without making any difference outside me, whereas Pepin, while feeling himself powerful with the stars in their courses, really raises some dust here below. He is no longer in his springtide, but having been always busy, he has been obliged to use his first impressions as if they were deliberate opinions, and to range himself on the corresponding side in ignorance of much that he commits himself to, so that he retains some characteristics of a comparatively tender age, and among them a certain surprise that there have not been more persons equal to himself. 
Perhaps it is unfortunate for him that he early gained a hearing, or at least a place in print, and was thus encouraged in acquiring a fixed habit of writing to the exclusion of any other bread-winning pursuit. He is already to be classed as a general writer, corresponding to the comprehensive wants of the general reader, and with this industry on his hands it is not enough for him to keep up the ingenuous self-reliance of youth. He finds himself under an obligation to be skilled in various methods of seeming to know, and having habitually expressed himself before he was convinced, his interest in all subjects is chiefly to ascertain that he has not made a mistake, and to feel his infallibility confirmed. That impulse to decide, that vague sense of being able to achieve the unattempted, that dream of aerial, unlimited movement at will, without feet or wings, which were once but the joyous mounting of young sap, are already taking shape as unalterable woody fibre. The impulse has hardened into style, and into a pattern of peremptory sentences. The sense of ability in the presence of other men's failures is turning into the official arrogance of one who habitually issues directions which he has never himself been called to execute. The dreamy buoyancy of the stripling has taken on a fatal sort of reality in written pretensions which carry consequences. He is on the way to become like the loud, buzzing, bouncing bombus who combines conceited illusions enough to supply several patients in a lunatic asylum with the freedom to show himself at large in various forms of print. If one who takes himself for the telegraphic center of all American wires is to be confined as unfit to transact affairs, what shall we say to the man who believes himself in possession of the unexpressed motives and designs dwelling in the breasts of all sovereigns and all politicians? And I grieve to think that poor Pepin, though less political, may by and by manifest a persuasion hardly more sane, for he is beginning to explain people's writing by what he does not know about them. Yet he was once at the comparatively innocent stage, which I have confessed to be that of my own early astonishment at my powerful originality, and copying the just humility of the old Puritan, I may say, but for the grace of discouragement, this coxcombry might have been mine. Pepin made for himself a necessity of writing and getting printed before he had considered whether he had the knowledge or belief that would furnish eligible matter. At first, perhaps, the necessity galled him a little, but it is now as easily born, nay, is as impressible a habit as the outpouring of inconsiderate talk. He is gradually being condemned to have no genuine impressions, no direct consciousness of enjoyment or the reverse from the quality of what is before him. His perceptions are continually arranging themselves in forms suitable to a printed judgment, and hence they will often turn out to be as much to the purpose if they are written without any direct contemplation of the object, and are guided by a few external conditions which serve to classify it for him. In this way he is irrevocably losing the faculty of accurate mental vision, having bound himself to express judgments which will satisfy some other demands than that of veracity, he has blunted his perceptions by continual preoccupation. We cannot command veracity at will. The power of seeing and reporting truly is a form of health that is to be delicately guarded, and, as an ancient rabbi has solemnly said, the penalty of untruth is untruth. 
but Pepin is only a mild example of the fact that incessant writing with a view to printing carries internal consequences which have often the nature of disease, and however unpractical it may be to consider whether we have anything to print which it is good for the world to read, or which has not been better said before, it will perhaps be allowed to be worth considering what effect the printing might have on ourselves. Clearly, there is a sort of writing which helps to keep the writer in a ridiculously contented ignorance, raising in him continually the sense of having delivered himself effectively, so that the acquirement of more thorough knowledge seems as superfluous as the purchase of a costume for a past occasion. He has invested his vanity, perhaps his hope of income, in his own shallowness and mistakes, and must desire their prosperity. Like the professional prophet, he learns to be glad of the harm that keeps up his credit, and to be sorry for the good that contradicts him. It is hard enough for any of us, amid the changing winds of fortune and the hurly-burly of events, to keep quite clear of a gladness which is another's calamity. But one may choose not to enter on a course which will turn such gladness into a fixed habit of mind, committing ourselves to be continually pleased that others should appear to be wrong in order that we may have the air of being right. In some cases, perhaps, it might be urged that Pepin has remained the more self-contented because he has not written everything he believed himself capable of. He once asked me to read a sort of program of the species of romance which he should think it worth while to write, a species which he contrasted in strong terms with the productions of illustrious but overrated authors in this branch. Pepin's romance was to present the splendors of the Roman Empire at the culmination of its grandeur when decadence was spiritually but not visibly imminent. It was to show the workings of human passion in the most pregnant and exalted of human circumstances, the designs of statesmen, the interfusion of philosophies, the rural relaxation and converse of immortal poets, the majestic triumphs of warriors, the mingling of the quaint and sublime in religious ceremony, the gorgeous delirium of gladiatorial shows, and under all the secretly working leaven of Christianity. Such a romance would not call the attention of society to the dialect of stable-boys, the low habits of rustics, the vulgarity of small schoolmasters, the manners of men in livery, or to any other form of uneducated talk and sentiments. Its characteristics would have virtues and vices alike on the grand scale, and would express themselves in an English representing the discourse of the most powerful minds in the best latin or possibly greek when there occurred a scene with a greek philosopher on a visit to rome or resident there as a teacher in this way pepin would do in fiction what had never been done before something not at all like rienzi or notre dame de paris or any other attempt of that kind but something at once more penetrating and more magnificent more passionate and more philosophical more panoramic yet more select, something that would present a conception of a gigantic period, in short, something truly Roman and world-historical. When Pepin gave me this program to read, he was much younger than at present. Some slight success in another vein diverted him from the production of panoramic and select romance, and the experience of not having tried to carry out his program has naturally made him more biting and sarcastic on the failures of those who have actually written romances, 
without apparently having had a glimpse of a conception equal to his. Indeed, I am often comparing his rather touchingly inflated naivety as of a small young person walking on tiptoe while he is talking of elevated things, at the time when he himself felt the author of that unwritten romance with his present epigrammatic curtness and affectation of power kept strictly in reserve. His paragraphs now seem to have a bitter smile in them from the consciousness of a mind too penetrating to accept any other man's ideas, and too equally competent in all directions to seclude his power in any one form of creation, but rather fitted to hang over them all as a lamp of guidance to the stumblers below. You perceive how proud he is of not being indebted to any writer, even with the dead he is on the creditor's side, for he is doing them the service of letting the world know what they meant better than those poor pre-Papinians themselves had any means of doing, and he treats the mighty shades very cavalierly. Is this fellow, citizen of ours, considered simply in the light of a baptized Christian and tax-paying Englishman, really as madly conceited, as empty of reverential feeling, as unveracious and careless of justice, as full of catchpenny devices and strategy attitudinizing, as on examination his writing shows itself to be? By no means. He has arrived at his present pass in the literary calling through the self-imposed obligation to give himself a manner which would convey the impression of superior knowledge and ability. He is much worthier and more admirable than his written productions because the moral aspects exhibited in his writing are felt to be ridiculous or disgraceful in the personal relations of life. In blaming Pepin's writing, we are accusing the public conscience which is so lax and ill-informed on the momentous bearings of authorship that it sanctions the total absence of scruple in undertaking and prosecuting what should be the best warranted of vocations. Hence I still accept friendly relations with Pepin, for he has much private amiability, and though he probably thinks of me as a man of slender talents, without rapidity of coup d'oeil, and with no compensatory penetration, he meets me very cordially, and would not, I am sure, willingly pain me in conversation by crudely declaring his low estimate of my capacity. Yet I have often known him to insult my betters and contribute, perhaps unreflectingly, to encourage injurious conceptions of them. But that was done in the course of his professional writing, and then the public conscience still leaves such writing nearly at the level of the Mary Andrews dress which permits an impudent deportment and extraordinary gambles to one who in his ordinary clothing shows himself the decent father of a family. End of chapter 14. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.